0: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is our weekly roundup where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's tremendous panel, making his Politicology debut, is Al Cardenas. Al is a nationally recognized leader in law, business, and politics. The Hill has named him one of Washington, D.C.'s top lobbyists. He's also the former chairman of the American Conservative Union and a two-term chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. He's been recognized as a top Latino lawyer by Latino Leaders Magazine and as one of the 100 most influential people in Florida politics. Al has also served in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations in numerous capacities, Al, the last time we saw each other was on the Republicans and Independence for Biden forum we did back in October, and it's so great to have you on Politicology.
1: Great to be with you, Ron, and thank you for that kind introduction.
0: Rounding out our panel is a familiar voice, the inimitable Susan Del Percio. Susan is a highly sought-after crisis communications expert and a political analyst at MSNBC. Thank you for joining us today, Susan, and good morning.
2: Good morning. Great to be with you.
0: On this week's roundup, Florida's laughable new law limiting social media companies and Governor Ron DeSantis' relationship with the Fourth Estate, the obstructed path forward for Biden's infrastructure bill, and the architects of the big lie who are hoping to run the next election. Also in our segment available exclusively to Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll talk about how QAnon adherents are weaving the latest news about UFOs into the viral conspiracy theory. Let's get started. On Monday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the Stop Social Media Censorship Act, which would impose fines up to $250,000 per day on any social media platform that deactivates the account of a candidate for public office. In other words, this law requires social media companies, which are private enterprises, to host users and speech they otherwise might not want to. And this is a first of its kind bill. And is clearly a reaction to the perceived persecution of Trumpists online, specifically, of course, the removal of former President Trump's accounts from Twitter and Facebook. So Al, what do you think about this? Is this law designed to actually be enforced? Is it a you know is, is this a is this a stunt? If it's not designed to be enforced, what kind of statement is Governor DeSantis making here?
1: Well, I think the uh, statement the governor and the legislature wanted to make is a To a rebuke to social media canceling accounts of people that they follow, most specifically President Trump. And now, you know, this this new law is, of course, subject to a lot of litigation. What is the state jurisdictional boundary for a law of this nature? Uh, Can a state actually do something like this? And what are the First Amendment uh, implications and, And compared to Private companies' rights to figure out what they consider be acceptable content, and so uh, we'll see what it does moving forward. Uh, I'm assuming that its boundaries will probably be confined to if if they're allowed by 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 the courts confined to to state candidates. Uh, but we'll see
0: so can you talk a little bit about what the First Amendment has to say about compelled speech and how you see this law? Uh, holding up in court or not. Um, and, and also, you know, along the same lines, we also hear conservatives talking a lot about Section 230. And it'd be helpful if you could briefly explain what Section 230 does and doesn't say about content liability.
1: Yeah, well, the concern that uh, we have is that balance between a private sector ownership right to have boundaries under content. and uh, And to do so, you don't need to... I mean it, this is not a publicly regulated uh outlet like uh cable TV or radio or, or outlets right. of that nature that actually respond to federal regulatory authority these are private sector companies there's a lot of uh talk in congress amongst the more conservative you know members about imposing regulatory oversight into these private sector, you know, mm. social media uh, organizations, but that doesn't exist now. And so how how can you legislatively, without a regulatory framework, impose restrictions of this nature on, on a private sector-owned social media company is, is a very interesting legal issue. My sense is, Obviously, it'll ultimately be decided by the courts. But for the state to circumvent the regulatory process at the federal level and institute a process at the state level that isn't really defined, Uh, who at the state level under this law, who has the right to tell these companies that they have violated uh, the Mm. legislation that has been passed? That's the number one question. Without a regulatory framework, uh, you don't have a you don't have a particular way to define when they've committed such a violation at this point in time if you read the law, my sense is you don't really have a uh, you don't have an adequate answer and so mm-hmm. i'm thinking that this particular legislation is a message to uh uh to social media that uh they they've overstepped their boundaries in terms of censuring those with a far right message Mm. Uh, how the law would be implemented would be for the courts to decide. And I don't see a mechanism right now for there to be an entity that's a determinant of whether they've come afoul of that legislation.
0: Mm, I see. So there's some procedural gray area here and potentially a constitutional question that could make it to the Supreme Court eventually. Is that accurate? That's correct. Okay. So, Susan, the perceived anti-conservative bias of social media companies has been pretty hot as a talking point on the right. Um, how backwards is this from the conservatism? I put that in air quotes that previously would have scoffed at not only this kind of sort of victimhood complex, but the regulation itself and the suggestion that these platforms, which are owned by private companies, should essentially be treated like public utilities. I mean, it it seems like a major abandonment from small government conservatism, Um and maybe they are aware of this hypocrisy. Maybe they don't care that it's hypocritical. Uh, how do you think about that?
2: Oh, I think they're aware, and I think they don't care. But I would, if I were these companies, I just I wouldn't operate in Florida. Take them out of the equation. Full stop. No political hmm. uh, uh, conversations allowed in Florida um, on their platform. Remove it, and only cop
0: I, I, you know, you laugh, but why
2: not? Yeah, like, why not? why not say everything comes from the office of the governor, no name mentioned, and the office of the 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 elected officials again, no names mentioned, and just ban it. Because here's the thing: Desantis is just never thinks things through. And there's another issue that kind of goes along this lines um, as far as conservatism goes, and and his disregard for it is. The way he's handled the cruise industry, which is a major financial economic driver for Florida, he calls for the CDC to lift the ban on cruise ships. He Mm -hmm. then says separately that he will not allow any businesses to operate in Florida that require vaccinations from people. Well, the cruise ship industry is only running cruises that, you guessed it, (laughs) require vaccination. (laughs) So I'm not sure what Ron DeSantis was thinking when he decided to, you know, cut the knees out of the biggest one of the biggest industries in Florida. But he just doesn't think things through. You want to go after social media? You want to test science? You want to go after science? Well, then. You reap what you sow. And it just goes to show that he is just after the, the, whatever gets him the attention, whatever the hot yeah. topic is. It's, he's trying to be a personality public servant and that should not fly.
0: So I'm glad you brought up Ron DeSantis, because I want to take a small detour here and talk about him and the free press and the erosion of norms in this new political era that we're in. Um, Because he signed another piece of legislation earlier in May that restricts voting by mail and ballot drop boxes. Um, Even though plenty of reporters showed up, only one outlet was in the room for the signing, and that was Fox News. And he even gave an exclusive interview to Fox and Friends during the signing. Now we have the bill text and the law's passage was covered by national news, but by limiting media presence in the physical room, he was able to escape any type of probing or critical questions. Um, And essentially the fourth estate and by extension, the public was left out of this process. Um, The Washington Post's Philip Bump wrote, for DeSantis then it made perfect sense to restrict his bill signing to just the media outlet that had indirectly championed it. So Al, zoom out for us here. If a free press is literally enshrined in the constitution, even in our increasingly fractured media environment, why is it so critical that events like this be witnessed by reporters? And how does that help us remain, uh, sustain freedom in this country?
1: Well, uh, let me let, let me start by the motivation behind it. Right, yeah. um, uh, Florida was one of the strongest states uh, for Donald Trump in the two thousand twenty election. The uh, governor, Desantis, is one of the top two or three potential candidates for president, uh, according to all the polls. He's very popular in Florida. He beats uh, all three potential Democrat opponents by ten points or more. And uh, right now uh, his roadmap is to continue to advocate for those issues that are popular with a Trump base. Uh, those include uh, the voting uh, legislation. It includes the uh, social media censoring and, uh, and uh, it includes the uh, battles with the CDC that are mm. perceived by the far mm. right to be uh, highly suspect. And so he's kind of hitting all three uh, themes uh he seems to be doing very well in the polls and my sense is that uh some of the voters that are favoring him because of how the state has weathered this uh the recession and, and uh pandemic uh are looking the other way about these issues. So um uh, what he's done here is is pretty much the along the course of, of that. Uh the C D C has just cleared uh, Royal Caribbean, one of these Top uh, cruise lines to uh, to begin in July, I believe. Uh, at, at, at the process of embarking passengers and and having a test uh, a, a test ride, uh, it's obvious that very few people want to get in such ships mm-hmm. if, if they're not assured that everyone's vaccinated. You remember the headaches that happened uh, over a year ago when people uh, were were constrained for two weeks inside these cruise ships without being able to land, and uh, no one wants to face that experience. And so the cruise ships are not going to take off without uh, without people being vaccinated. And so if they have to do it with ports outside of the state of Florida, they will. And so this is one of these issues that right now they're they're facing. Uh, eye to eye, the governor and the cruise lines, CDC seems to be in the cruise lines corner. Uh, president seems to be in this in the cruise lines corner. Uh, we'll see where it ends.
0: Susan, Donald Trump basically gave Republicans a free pass to call all media and journalists they don't like fake news, right? This was just one of the dozens of unwritten norms that we took for granted because Trump stomped all over them with impunity. What do you see as the costs of Trump's denigration of the media? How do we, can we, if we can, reestablish norms that have been so grossly violated? And you know, for our listeners, some of some of those norms include, um, you know, having personally profited off of his official business, uh, withholding tax returns, most famously, refusing oversight by firing inspectors general interfering with DOJ investigations, attacking judges. This seems to me, you know, it also might be worth mentioning Stephanie Grisham uh, served as White House press secretary for eight months and held no regular press briefings, even though she was regularly on Fox. So how do we think about the erosion of all of these norms and whether or not they can be reinstituted going forward? How, how are you thinking about this?
2: All right. Well, there's a lot to, I know, I know. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, to answer the first part of your question is what happens to our society when you have public news outlets being denigrated the way they were by Donald Trump? You get an insurrection like you did on January 6th. And that goes to the, the crumbling of the pillars of our democracy. They held for the four years. There's no doubt mm-hmm. they would have crumbled under Donald Trump. and the way you go after the media as far as trying to you know, we we don't live in in shared facts anymore let's not forget that one of the first things we learned out of the trump administration was they believe in alternative facts mm-hmm. right so if they believe mm-hmm. in alternative facts and they have news outlets that are willing to spew those we are not of a shared common good and a common sense of truth a shared truth Right. That's right. why nothing's happening in Washington right now. There is no trust. There is no shared truth. How can you not have an independent report, or at least a non a bipartisan, independent report of what happened on January sixth? It should be easy. They don't yeah. want to agree to the facts.
1: Yeah. And that's yeah.
2: that. Look, that's the, it uh,
1: yeah. The the facts are scary. Yeah, Susan. Um. The uh, you know I came from a country that that had a dictatorship from Cuba, and uh, the textbook application of a dictatorship taking total control is being followed by Donald Trump. Number one, you either eliminate the press or you totally, uh, or you make sure that it's totally ineffective. Number two, you take away all of the procedures you have for checks and balances. That's why he did away with uh, inspector general reports. He fired so many of them and so many others. So without checks and balances, without a free press to... To properly uh, report on what you do, and and have uh, enough of people in the country believe in that those reports, you begin to develop the one man rule, mm-hmm. and uh, and Donald Trump was well on his way to do that during those first four years, and my sense is you can only venture a guess as to the crumbling of our basic institutions if he had another four years. To and go. Mm-hmm. It just to
2: follow up on that, um, on what Al said. Look at DeSantis again. Look at what happens when you can only appeal to one media source that is in your corner. You are literally having news reported that you choose to have and not speaking to anybody else. It's also funny, like it's Andrew Cuomo-esque too when he refused to have news conferences on important issues. But that's the, the control over the media, the silos that they're in and how they They deliver the news to the people who want to not learn, but have their opinions affirmed. And that's the society that we live in. We used to watch the news, however you want to define that, or read the news on shared facts and to be informed. Now, that's not the job for a lot of media right now, especially conservative media. They don't want to inform their public. They want yeah. to affirm it. They want to tell them more of what they believe and, and play into it. They lean into that argument. And that is leading to, a, you look at the numbers of, of two thirds of Republicans do not believe Biden was elected by the U.S. people of the United States. That's insane.
0: Mm-hmm. It is insane.
2: I mean, and, and we had, you know, we had these elections certified and recounted and everything, and they still believe that somehow this was rigged. They only believe it because they watch the news that affirms that thought. Yes. And yes. that's the true danger. And while, and I, and I appreciate what Al said about, you know, leaving Cuba and, and what that communist country did and how they, they controlled their media and what, could have happened if Donald Trump got elected for the next four years. I worry yeah. that people are using their playbook. That's what Ron DeSantis did. That's right. Donald Trump it was long gone when De- when that's DeSantis right. had that yeah. press conference. Yeah. He's using that playbook.
0: And that's why we're talking about him now, because while Trump has, has sort of exited the stage, at least uh, in terms of actually having power official power this is what's happening in his wake this is the consequence of the norms that he's broken he's paved the way for following the playbook of dictators and and I am increasingly uh, worried about our our essentially political will to to stand up to the continued norm breaking. Ron, you've heard um, because, me say this. Oh, yeah. I was just
2: going to say, you've heard me say this so many times. Yeah. Trump is gone. That was the easy part. Trumpism is now mm. seeped into our, into our state level and local politics, which allows it to fester and grow, which is the danger.
0: Yeah. Okay, let's turn to infrastructure, speaking of things that are crumbling. And so- yeah it seems, (laughs) uh, are the prospects for a bipartisan agreement in Congress on Biden's infrastructure plan. Republicans rejected the White House's proposal of a $1.7 trillion deal, which had been cut back from the original $2.25 trillion proposal. Both sides are stuck at basically every meaningful decision point, including how much to spend and on what, how to pay for it, Republicans object to raising taxes on higher earners and corporations and want to pay for infrastructure with user fees. Democrats accuse Republicans of refusing to accept good faith concessions. Um, Republicans say the one7 Trillion dollar deal is still far too large. Um, Some Democrats have signaled that they'd like to move forward without Republicans to try to pass something through reconciliation, which, as you might remember, is how Democrats passed their COVID 19 relief bill that Republicans voted against and then took credit for back home. Um, Yet, there are still several groups of senators trying to find common ground on a modest proposal. There's at least one group of six GOP Senators holding discussions with the White House and a second bipartisan group of eight senators holding weekly meetings to search for compromise on infrastructure. So Susan, um, what is the political calculation here on the Republican side? Um, because we've we've talked a lot about, Um, you know, they're not even having a real agenda, um, in terms of their policy proposals, they wouldn't even be talking about infrastructure if it weren't for the white house's proposal. Do they even need something to take home and campaign on if the campaigns are going to come down to whether or not you believe the big lie, if that is the dividing line between the parties now effectively, uh, you know, is it whether you think Biden is a legitimate president, if that's what the midterms are shaping up to be about on the Republican side, then do they even need some piece of legislation that addresses infrastructure? And is that going to make them you know, all the less likely to give Joe Biden anything he can call a win?
2: Yeah, there's a few things that came into play this week. One, just right before we started our discussion, it was announced that the Republicans came back with just under $1 trillion as their counteroffer hmm. to Biden. So it does show that they are serious and looking to make a good faith effort. The other thing that happened is the pressure on the Republicans in the Senate to get behind a January 6th commission, and, and bear with me because it all comes together, yeah. um, has been such a point of contention that I think it's giving Joe Manchin the out on bipartisanship, mm. meaning if he can't see the, a deal being reached on a, an, on the insurrection... And an investigation of that. And he knows there's no bipartisanship to be had. Therefore, when if this deal doesn't work out, it gives him and a few other Democrats an out to say, we'll do it on our own because we can't work with you crazy people. If they won't do it, they don't believe in bipartisanship. I gave you everything. I gave it COVID relief. I'm giving you infrastructure for crying out loud. I made the easiest thing for you to come together on a commission. Yeah, and you won't do it. You know what? Let's take it on our own. But and there's also one other thing that's in play this year, which we haven't seen in, I think, about twenty years, um, or ten years, is that you have earmarks. So there are mm-hmm. ways that um, legislative leaders, Congress members, and senators will be able to deliver something for mm-hmm. their constituency. But I do feel that the Republicans are starting to feel a little pressured, like we got to get something for our constituents because the message of the White House has been so good. We have bipartisanship across America. We have mm. mayors. We have governors. It's just those people in Washington who are playing politics that we don't have. But yeah. that's a strong message to deliver in these swing states.
0: Yeah, So, Al, there is so much talk about bipartisanship. Um, Obviously, to get something significant out of the Senate would require 60 votes, so at least 10 Republicans. But, you know, especially in our overly politicized political environment, that that doesn't even seem to do it justice anymore because, you know, one half of it seems to be completely insane. Do voters actually care about bipartisanship anymore? My sense is that they don't, but I'd love to hear what you think about this. And, and should Democrats just go it alone and let Republicans vote no on what are, you know, objectively broadly popular pieces of legislation?
1: Well, I think you're right about uh, voters. Uh, the divide is so significant that, uh, that they kind of talk past each other. But in terms of the Congress uh, mm-hmm. and in terms of the Senate in particular, here's a challenge. Uh, Joe Biden historically has been a centrist, and historically compromise has not been a dirty word for him. His challenge is that all of his advisors are telling him, and I think rightfully so, that he's got like a 50-50 chance to keep majority of the House. And they know that if they don't keep majority in the House, uh, a lot of these... Measures that he wants to implement are just not going to happen. You're going to have gridlock with uh, facing a presidential election year cycle. And so uh, the chances for bipartisan compromise are impacted by Joe Biden's uh, inner circle realization that they better get everything done these two years, regardless of Republicans' uh, willing willingness to negotiate and Republicans' understanding that That truthfully, what they put into that infrastructure package goes beyond infrastructure in ways that they're not comfortable. And so, uh, you know, under normal circumstances, I think the $1 trillion comeback by Republicans would have been a good step and uh, could have reached a level of compromise uh, to get things done. The challenge for Biden is that he knows that if he loses one of the chambers, he'll never get the— you know, child care benefits and some of the other uh, social programs that are so important to a significant uh, portion of 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 his uh, mm. of his uh, constituents in the Congress. Right. And so it's almost like uh, you know we're talking about it. We're making some outwardly significant efforts to compromise, but it's less likely, in my opinion, that compromise will happen for all the reasons I've shared Uh, with regards to the taxes. Yeah, they're, they're far apart. My view, my personal view is that you probably need both what the Republicans and the Democrats are advocating at, at this point in our country, the debt crisis is so significant, Ron, that I'd rather, uh, I'd rather impose these taxes, increase revenues that get further in the hole from the deficit side with this infrastructure bill. So, I don't know how the numbers work if you don't take most of what the Republicans and the Democrats are offering for a tax uh, revenue increase. That's
2: because Al's a real conservative. He actually <laughs> believes in fiscal discipline, <laughs> which is something <laughs> that we can laugh about. But the, yeah. that's another issue where the Republicans in Washington, after Donald Trump and what they— No, they,
0: there's no such thing exists for them anymore.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. you have a—you know, we can't— we, we keep thinking about like fiscal conservatism, it exists among true conservatives
0: yeah.
2: like Al. It does yeah. not exist in Washington.
0: Yeah. If Biden's advisors are telling him he's got a 50-50 shot at keeping the house, then like I just I don't know what to make of that because I there's just no way that happens. I like let's 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 plant a flag really quick here. But like uh, and and as dangerous as political predictions can be, we're not Democrats are. There's no way they can keep the House in 2022. Susan,
2: oh, I I disagree. I really? I think it is possible for two reasons. Okay, one is look at the candidates that the states are particularly in swing districts are putting forward. They are going to the right in the primaries.
0: Mm-hmm. If they
2: put someone too far to the right, the Democrat if the Democrats put up a decent moderate candidate. They can lose that seat because even,
0: <laughs> even yeah, no, no, I don't, members yeah. of the
2: House who would normally be conservative are not deemed conservative by the state parties anymore. The second is Donald Trump is starting to do rallies again.
0: Next <laughs> <time>. <laughs> you don't think that Donald Trump brings out the
2: worst of the worst and that, that people, you know, they, they yeah. will use yes. that as a reason to vote against yes. them.
0: Okay. So I, t- I take all of that. the reason yeah. why- go, yeah. go ahead, Al. The reason why I have a hard
1: time predicting yeah. is because it's a reapportionment. Exactly.
0: Here. That is my argument because they're about to redraw yeah. all these lines it, and those swing districts will be no more for the most part.
1: Right. And so I don't, you know, you would tend to think that in the South that will benefit Republicans, mm-hmm. but there are other parts of the country where it won't. And so- uh, i I don't know where all of that will end up. All I know is that 92 percent of incumbents typically win uh-huh. and uh, and so but that that one uh, statistic goes out the window when you have a reapportionment year right. because so many new voters will be facing new new faces uh, in terms of candidates
0: right. Okay, we'll put a pin in it. We'll leave it unsettled. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But we are following the redistricting go-round very closely on this podcast. So stay tuned for another uh, Drawing Democracy episode as there will be more to cover very soon. Let's talk about the big lie and the latest on that front. Despite Kevin McCarthy's asinine assertion that nobody is questioning the results of the 2020 election, New national polling this week from Reuters Ipsos suggests Republican voters aren't convinced Joe Biden is the fairly elected sworn in president. Susan, you mentioned some numbers earlier today. Fully 53% of Republicans in the poll said Donald Trump was the true president, while 47% said Joe Biden. 56% of Republicans say that the results of the 2020 election were, quote, the result of illegal voting or election rigging. Over 60% of Republicans either strongly or somewhat agreed with the statement that the 2020 election, quote, was stolen from Donald Trump. So the pervasiveness of this disinformation is dangerous in and of itself, but even more so when we look at who is hoping to run elections the next time around. Politico ran a story this week with the headline, they tried to overturn the 2020 election. Now they want to run the next one. And they profiled several several Republicans who are proponents of the big lie and who are now launching campaigns to become the top elections officials in their respective states, including Congressman Jody Heiss of Georgia, who voted against certifying the 2020 Electoral College results, Arizona State Representative Mark Fincham, who was a top proponent of the bogus audit, which is now unraveling in Maricopa County, we talked about last week, Jim Marchant, a former member of the Nevada State Assembly who unsuccessfully sued for a re-vote in an election he lost last year, citing made-up allegations of voter fraud. Christina Caramo in Michigan, who falsely claimed Trump won Michigan and spent weeks challenging the election results by making dozens of appearances on right-wing media outlets as a whistleblower. And it's important to note she didn't actually hold any office or power. She was a poll watcher. Now, all of these people are running for secretary of state in their respective states, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, and Michigan, all states that Biden won by extremely narrow margins. So, Al, I want to go to you first. These are people who have taken steps to undermine trust in our democracy and uh, and the legitimacy of the election, and Republican voters have largely bought what they were selling. Now they could soon be the ones who are running the elections themselves, and in critical states. So, what chorus of alarm bells does this set off for you?
1: Well, you remember what I told you at the outset about uh, about dictatorships and lessons you learned. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at Venezuela; they haven't. You know, as long as the government controls the electoral process, those those fellows win, and so uh, who are in charge, and so my opinion uh in getting uh, to run the elections in a state that's decided by 10,000 votes you know who makes up the rules uh who's able to suppress votes and the right uh, electoral precincts who's able to do this or that those thin margins uh are uh, uh could be the determinative of the winner uh if somebody's in charge of all of that so i don't i don't take it lightly uh, what's taking place around the country i uh, i take it very seriously i think the the fact that uh, election integrity in my opinion in a democracy is probably its uh, highest calling is uh, it's very uh, very uh, difficult to accept it's very uh, concerning to see what's taking place but you know in a democracy you can't keep people from running for office uh you've got to have a better counter and and defeat them I don't know how in the system that we have in America, you can prevent people who may not be well intentioned to run for office if they win well you know that's that's on the voters but it's uh it's a problem that we can define, but a solution in terms of keeping them out of a ballot is 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 not appropriate in america so uh we can be cognizant of a problem, but I'm not sure there's a solution other than the other party better coming up with a better candidate and more resources.
0: Our best defense is paying as close attention to these moves as possible and getting ready to hold these people accountable, um, which which is exactly why we're talking about it on this podcast. Susan, the Arizona state legislature is actually trying to strip Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, who's a Democrat, of her office's power to defend election lawsuits and give it to the attorney general. The provision would expire in 2023 when a new and possibly Republican secretary of state would take office. And I think it's fair to say we don't want elections in the hands of Republican attorneys general, most of whom not only pushed the big lie, but actively helped organize and push people to the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th. Um, So... You know, as we talked about before, the 2020 midterm elections are shaping up to be a referendum on democracy itself, just as much, if not more so, than 2020 was. How are you thinking about what's at stake here?
2: Well, i just like to say there were some real Republican heroes when it came to defending our elections. Um, you look at what happened in Georgia.
0: There Secretary yep. of
2: State there. So it's not all Republicans. I do agree that there are a problem with a lot of them, but, um, I do want to give credit to, to those who did stand up to do the right yeah. thing. As far as what's, and, and by the way, the, the board of Maricopa County is fighting this fault, fake audit and they're rep- four to one, right. four to one Democrat Republicans. So there are Republicans trying to do the right fight. I in 30 years have never saw anyone talk about Secretary of State as a hot ticket to run in. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. to me, is, yeah. it,
0: but it's, it's the, so. Yeah. Usually,
2: like, you're we, begging
0: someone to run for right. Secretary. That's of right. That's <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. because and it's been it's, so. Yeah. It's been so routine, right? Because, sorry, go ahead. Yes, the, totally. The, with yes, you.
2: It, it's. But, and therein lies the danger. By the way, therein lies the danger. No one cares, has ever voted and cared about secretary of state to get people interested to motivate voters is extremely difficult. It's usually a damn ballot position. There's very few times that you see a secretary outperform a, a senator or governor election on the ballot. So right. that is, ex- that is the biggest challenge. So it is going to have to be an awareness campaign that, like voter registration, has to start today like this hour like when people after they listen to this podcast like go do something to ensure recognition of the secretary of state's office in your state because it is so important this is this is yeah
1: well thank you
2: i mean this is this is the game like this is how we have to look at it and and the only thing that we have going for us is that the republicans have just shown us their hand or yes. my hand. I'm a Republican. Yeah, um, I see my hand, um, <laughs> and and that at least we know what the playbook is, and 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 it can be challenged and, and gone after, and it must because it is so. It's a race that no one ever paid attention to before. Yeah, yeah. So I can't express the need for it to you know. I know everyone's going to look at governors and, and Senate races, but this is the game.
0: Yeah, I mean I think a lot of people are looking at, you know, the 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 congressional midterms, right? Everybody's going to be focused on what happens in the House, but but it's really important and I think politicalology listeners get this because we've 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 drilled it enough and we've been talking about how the the more local offices, the more undercovered offices are actually the ones who are in charge of executing the, you know, the basically Keeping the gears of democracy moving, and if you corrupt those gears, if you corrupt those offices, you can you can have a a, a major corrupting influence on the process itself. And uh, and I think uh, you know w- we can prognosticate about twenty twenty two about the about the the midterms all we want, but these are actual sort of democratic power centers democratic with a small d power centers in terms of the the integrity of our of our whole process so al anything you want to add about what's at stake in 2022
1: yeah you know we it, what you know i, I presided uh, over the uh, party when we had uh, the whole recount in florida in 2000 the year 2000 and so i followed this really closely since then And, you know, there's a minute human error involved uh, in some of these things. But the truth of the matter is we in America have an incredible check and balance Mm -hmm. system from local canvassing boards made up by judges and others counting the votes to a system where you have automatic recounts if the vote count is too close uh, to a court system that oversees all of these irregularities, if they're alleged, and determines what's uh, fair or not, uh, secretaries of state, people who have to, you know, you've got the local elected election officials who have to approve ballots uh, that, are, uh, that are placed on election day. I mean, we have an incredible system in place, and I'm very proud of it. And our elections have most of the time uh, been, I would say just about always, been pretty well run and the outcome has been pretty has been fairly decided and so for america to all of a sudden after this rich history of fairness abiding by the law having checks and balances question to such a large extent the legality and the outcome of an election is preposterous to me and it just goes to show you the incredible power of propaganda yes. that if you repeat things long enough you have even well-intentioned people willing to accept it and so it's a problem but now we, we're we living with this problem we, we're we living with this ins- uncertainty and now we have to continue to uh, ab- you know advocate for the obvious and that is that america has a heck of a good system going and sure it could use tweaks and, and here and there but uh but but we have an incredible election system and And to say otherwise is is a blatant lie. So
0: well said, Al. A republic if you can keep it. Politicology, stay vigilant. Now that we're up to speed on the biggest stories of the week, what stories are you following that may have flown under the radar or that may influence our politics in some unexpected way? Susan, what are you looking at?
2: Um, I know that we're covering the vaccination rates in our country and who's doing well and what limits we're hitting and how great it is. But I just want to highlight that we're still having over 20,000 cases a day mm. and that yesterday, 624 people died of COVID. We are losing over 2,500 people a week. That is a staggering number if you just think about it. And yeah. The amount of loss for for families, for communities, it's still tremendous. And it's happening in the places where there's medical res. They're not proper medical resources available. Um, They're not the best equipped and people are still dying. And I don't I listen. I think that this we have done a tremendous job in creating the vaccination. Warp speed was a tremendous success. Biden has done a fantastic job getting it into people's arms. But 2,500 people a week mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how we're still not talking about that.
0: Yeah, you're right. The The progress of the vaccine rollout has sort of eclipsed the death toll, which has not, uh, I mean, it's subsided, but it's certainly still ongoing. And yeah, uh, and I think we're at 50% now uh, vaccinated or at least partially vaccinated. Total adults in America, um, which is still a long ways off from where we need to be. And, um, and I don't have a good handle on how, how quickly the, I mean, the rollout has, has slowed dramatically, I think in places where we need it the most, um, and so they're paying
2: a- people to get it. I mean, you get yeah. lottery tickets, you get college lottery tuition, tickets. you get yeah. ball game tickets, you get beer. <laughs> I mean, whatever yeah. your fancy yeah. is, yeah. you beer. can get it. Beer. Like you just and you. And the states yeah. aren't saying you have yeah. to live there. So if you want to go yeah. to like you know a baseball game in, in Massachusetts, like get your yeah. shot and they'll let you in.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and all of this really goes back i think al you mentioned this earlier to the misinformation and the fight with the cdc and now dr fauci is the villain of the day and um and yeah. and it really shows just how uh it shows the real world damage in terms of you know our ability to get to herd immunity the public health damage of Misinformation, which we tend to think of as this sort of ephemeral you know it's non tangible it's just out there on the internet, but it actually has yeah. a real world impact indeed yep yeah. al what's your what's your story what are you looking at uh, my story is
1: what will our economy and especially our labor force look like after the recession has subsided and the pandemic is in good shape. Uh, Many people speculate that America has really lost about 8 million jobs based on lessons learned during the pandemic and the recession. Uh, That's a lot of people. That's a lot of pain in a lot of areas. Uh, You know, in September, a lot of the unemployment benefits are going to stop. Uh, We're going to, in the last quarter of this year, begin to see what a true economy looks like without the very significant government subsidies. And, uh, and so right now we're almost in a artificial state of well being where the majority of Americans think the country's headed in the right direction. And that's because of a massive, unprecedented, you know, pumping of resources into the economy, which incidentally I advocate. I think it was smart to do that rather than have a total collapse. But now that we're beginning to have to face a realities of a real economy without Big Brother, helping us along the way, what do we do? If we truly have 8 million people that are not going to be able to find employment, uh, we better figure out a way to train them to become employable. Uh, and so that, uh, the country can move along, uh, and move along. Well, also the unexplained reason why so many restaurants and smaller businesses cannot find people to work if indeed we have such a continuing high unemployment and uh, we need to figure out why that is. Is it because they're uh, okay and not feeling a sense of emergency because of the government, uh, you know, receipts they have had, or is it because something else? And so there's a lot we need to figure out before the end of this year as to what a real economy Mm -hmm. will look like and what do we need to do to assist these people who are, Gonna be long-term unemployable unless we find a way to retrain them.
0: That's a really great look-ahead story. And since you brought it up, I want to ask you: To what extent you think the increasing trend of of working from home or working remotely or you know partially doing that is going to impact uh, the labor economy? Um, uh, and and and, right. I, and I'm sure you're thinking about this, but you know, as more and more more and more offices begin to sort of consider whether they're going to open up or they're going to require their employees to come back, a lot of them are completely rethinking offices in general. and and that, I think, is sort of changing the nature of work and the relationship with work that a lot of people have. So I wonder how you think that plays into the um, the picture you just painted.
1: Well, I think a significantly increased working from home is here to stay. Uh, There are questions related to that, such as mentorship, human relations, uh, you know, learning from others. You know, there's a, you know, you can go work from home for a year and, uh, and, and really that's not affecting those things I just mentioned. But if you work from home for the rest of your career, what are your, Relationships going to look like. Who are you going to learn from? Who's going to mentor you? Uh, who are you going to mentor? Uh, you know, there's a lot that goes on with an isolated labor force that we haven't yet experienced. And that's a social phenomena that I, I can't begin to figure out. There are others hopefully yeah. better trained at that than I am, but, but it's yeah. clearly something we have to look at in our economy, in our economy and in our society.
0: Before I let you go, where can everyone find you on the internet, Al? Uh, well, I have a uh,
1: I have a pretty active Twitter page. Okay, and uh, and people can tune into that. Uh, just search my name, and my tweet handle will come out. And, uh, you know, I encourage you to do that. I will tell you that my dog, Chacha, has more followers than I do, but
0: (laughs) that's more, that's
1: more due to my wife than to me. But, uh, having said that, you can follow me and I, I like to share a couple of thoughts every day. So if you're willing to look into it, that'll be great. (laughs)
0: <laughs> we will do that. Give Anna and and uh, Chacha our best. Thank you, uh, <laughs> Susan. Where can everybody find I you on the internet? I actually in
2: had that? a dog that had a Twitter handle um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> with more <laughs> oh, wait, followers than you. <laughs> um,
2: but you can find me on Twitter at Del Percio s,
0: and you can find me at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home for listening. If you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. You can also help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts and by sharing this episode. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at politicologypod. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.